Joseph James D'Angelo is facing 13 homicide charges and 13 charges of kidnap with intent to rob in connection with the Golden State Killer crime spree. While law enforcement believes him to be responsible for the many rapes attributed to the East Area Rapist spree, due to the statute of limitations, they cannot file rape charges. At the time of this recording, Joseph D'Angelo has not yet entered a plea and is awaiting trial. This case is why we lock our doors at night. Attacked all over California. The community was taken hostage. Brutal homicides. One of the most prolific serial killers in the history of this state, if not in this nation. Today we're going to launch a national campaign to help identify the Golden State Killer. The identification and arrest of Joseph James D'Angelo, the man law enforcement believes to be the Golden State Killer, has taken quite an emotional toll on his many victims and survivors and their families. There's the shock and disbelief that a suspect has been identified. There's the excitement about an arrest. There's the relief that he's hopefully not coming back. There's an anger at the crimes that were committed. There's the horror of reliving their personal attacks. And there's the fresh grief for those he murdered. There's also now a human suspect in place of the masked man. Well, they were victims in the beginning, and they had to adjust to that. Then the arrest is made, and they had to adjust to that. And some of them, a lot of them, are going through counseling and help again. And then when the trial starts, and they have to be there to testify, or families have to testify, it's going to be very, very difficult for them. But I know that our district attorney, Amory Schubert, has opened every avenue of help to these victims possible. She has victim advocates working in her office, and they are in touch with the victims. They'll notify them of all of the process as they go along. They'll make sure they get all of the help, and they'll be there for them when it comes time to go to court. Just as retired Sacramento Sheriff's Deputy Carol Daly has been there for the victims the last 43 years. In 1976, she responded to the rape of Jane Carson. Jane was East Area Rapist Victim Number 5. And that's when Carol and other officers realized they had a serial predator on their hands. And when victims 7 and 8 reported their attacks, law enforcement formed the East Area Rapist Task Force, and Carol Daly was asked to join. Carol would be called to each scene in her jurisdiction and would take the traumatized women to the hospital and conduct their interviews. All said she helped 36 victims of the East Area Rapist during his reign of terror from 1976 to 1979. Carol Daly returned to the Homicide Division after the East Area Rapist seemed to go dormant in 1979. And even though she was no longer officially on the case, she continued to help and advocate for the victims for the next four decades. It was Carol who broke the news of Joseph James D'Angelo's arrest to many of the victims. And it's been Carol who's hosted gatherings at her home for the victims and their families after Joseph D'Angelo's various court appearances. I think just being together is a very healing process for them. Just the fact that they were not alone. And uh, so many times a victim is all alone in the process. But with so many who were his victims, and they call themselves the sister survivors, and it's a wonderful term 
and they do lean on each other. They communicate with each other. And I've just had the privilege of meeting a couple of them whose cases I didn't work. So it's been overwhelming, but it's also been very emotional and touching to have these victims come into our home and to be able to share with each other. And actually, I just provide the place and I let them interact with each other. And, you know, that's kind of my end of the part of it, just making a place available for them to be safe. Jane Carson, East Area Rapist Victim Number 5, is one of those sister survivors. And she shares her reaction to the news of the identification and arrest of Joseph James D'Angelo, the suspected Golden State Killer. But before we hear from Jane, Carol Daly joins us with her own response to the capture of the alleged serial killer that law enforcement spent 42 years pursuing. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Retired Sacramento Sheriff's Deputy Carol Daly has worked tirelessly on behalf of the victims of the Golden State Killer, and we're excited to welcome her back today. Carol, welcome. Hey. Thank you, and thank you for letting me be on your program to represent the victims. Of course. We love having you. Nobody could have done it better. So when we first met in 2016, we've since talked several times, obviously before the arrest and now now since the arrest. But what a journey it has been. You were always such a great advocate for the victims and were essential, essential in keeping this story out in the media in the hopes of getting some answers. Did you believe we'd ever get to this point? No, I didn't. I had just had a phone conversation with Lieutenant Shelby in about March of this year or last year. And all of the media that had taken place with all of the announcement of the FBI and the increased reward and all of the media attention and all of the tips and everything coming in, and they thought they had him, then they didn't. They thought they had him and they didn't. And I told Shelby, I just feel that if he isn't identified by January of 2019, we're never going to know who the East Area Rapist was. And Shelby said, I agree. And lo and behold, within a month, we were in the midst of a media storm because he had been arrested. Yeah, I remember sitting in that restaurant at the hotel. It was after the 2016 press conference where they kind of announced a big reward. And I met you with Shelby and Todd. And you know, Carol, I just remember you sitting there going, I don't know if I can do this again. You know, it's been years and, and I keep getting, you know, disappointed when we don't get anywhere. And, you know, I'm just here for the victims if they need me. But I don't know if we can if I can really go through this whole thing again. And thankfully you did and sat down with us and gave us a big interview. But it's been quite the journey for you over the last 40 plus years. It has been a journey with a lot of ups and downs, not only for the victims, but for the victims' families who have held out hope all of these years along with their victims and for the law enforcement personnel who were invested 
hours and hours and hours, new investigators would come and pick up the old case. And so much time has been spent by everybody. And what was so rewarding to me, and of course, for the victims and the community, is that this case never went cold. There were always leads that were being followed up. There were always investigators that took this case to heart and wanted, beyond any reasonable doubt, uh, to have um, an identification and an arrest made in this case. So tell us how you found out about the arrest. Well, I was in the car traveling, which seems to be when I get all these important phone calls, and received a phone call from Sheriff Scott Jones. And I saw that it was his name because I had caller ID, and I answered, and he said, Carol, this is Sheriff Jones. And I said, yes, I see, (laughs) you know. And he said, I have to let you, I want to let you know, we've identified who the East Area Rapist is. I was in shock. And my first response, I'm driving and trying to pay attention to what I am, where I am going in the traffic and trying to process what he is saying. And that's, of course, my first response is, you have to be kidding. Now, Sheriff Jones would never call me with such an announcement as a joke because we had never worked together and we just knew each other professionally. And so he said, no, as a matter of fact, he's in our main jail right now being booked. Oof. And my next thought was, we have to call all of the victims before they hear it on the news. And he said, call anybody that you want. So one of my first phone calls was to Todd, Lindsay, <laughs> uh, because I, I just thought you guys had put out so much work in trying to identify the East Area Rapist. You were so invested in this case. And it was exciting for me to call you. And when I got a hold of Todd, he says, no kidding, I got to hang up and get an airplane flight to Sacramento, because <laughs> he knew there was going to be a big press conference the next day. I know. I still have your voicemail to this day. It was uh, It was quite the news. Yes, yes. It was exciting. And then, of course, my next phone call was to one of the victims. Before I could make any phone calls that evening, District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert called me and she said, oh, there's information getting out. So please don't call anybody until first thing in the morning because we're working on search warrants and we don't want information to get out. And I said, absolutely. And so I was on pins and needles all night. I waited for about six o'clock in the morning so I could start making some other phone calls. And of course, law enforcement, all of the agencies, I think they were all very good about notifying all of the victims, as many as they could themselves too, along with phone calls that other people were making. So it was a priority to let victims know before it hit the media, because that wasn't quite the case in 2001 when they had linked the DNA connecting the East Area Rapist with the uh, murders in Southern California. Sure. And I imagine people must have been just as shocked as you when you were delivering the news. How were people responding to you when you were calling them? Did you get a range of responses? Yes. The first victim just was crying and crying. And and, and I'm sorry, but I was I didn't mean to be rude or short, but I said, I have other phone calls to make. Will you stop crying and listen to what I'm saying? Uh, and she was so gracious about it, but it was immediate. And of course, it was sort of like me. It was a state of unbelief that this was really happening. The next people I called, the next victims were husband and wife who are still together after all these years. And I called and had both of them on the phone. 
And they both were in tears and thanked me for calling and said, you know, Carol, all of these years, that rape never defined who we were. And I thought, what powerful words Mm. and words that many other victims were going to repeat that that sexual assault and that horrible attack on them did not define who they were. They all were overcomers and achievers. Yeah, that day and obviously the few days following, there was a lot of shock and talking to a lot of the victims. It, It seemed surreal to them. And now that a couple of, you know, weeks and months have gone by and this new reality of a suspect in custody is setting in, everyone kind of seems to be going through their own process. What have you observed in terms of how these survivors are coming to terms with having to either relive this crime or the constant reminder of it being in the news, it really becoming a big part of their life again? It is. For years, what, 42 years, this case was unsolved. And so during that 42 years, a lot of the victims had a big change in their life. You know, there was separation, there were divorces, there were moves, there were changes of employment, there were a lot of things. And they were getting on with their lives. And in the back of their mind, of course, it never left them, as it has never left many of us as to what happened. But all through these years, As we were looking for the East Area Rapist, you know what was foremost out there all of the time were the old sketches Mm -hmm. and the pictures that had been drawn of what the rapists looked like. So when the arrest was made and the current picture came out, it was really hard to equate and putting together the two. I'm sure it took an adjustment for many of them. So all these years, they have adjusted, they have gone on with their lives, and then all of a sudden, these attacks are front and center in their lives again with the people around them. Some of the people that they had surrounded themselves knew nothing about them being a victim because they had not shared it. And so now, do I share it? Don't I share it? Who do I talk to about it? And then just the shock of the rapist being identified. And then making a decision as to whether or not they wanted to be at the arraignment. And some who just felt they were strong and had it all together, go to the arraignment, go to the next court hearing, and realize that the trauma is still there. And the reactions that they didn't expect, you know, the crying in court, and just a reminder of what this evil person did to them in their lives. That's powerful. I I can't imagine. And it seems to be a process that's still continuing, right? It's like every day there's there's new realizations and new kind of coming to terms. And in a way, you know, even for us, as we were looking at this case, you know, you you imagine this boogeyman in a mask. That's all we knew. And to kind of now kind of rethink of this entire case with this suspect in mind it's weird. It's like the, you know, you kind of have to repuzzle it. What's that been like for you? Because you were searching for this man for many years. After I left the investigation, I always call myself a dropout because I went back to the homicide detail and then I promoted up through the ranks and was not involved in investigations again, criminal investigations. I, you know, worked in internal affairs, but it never left me. The victims never left my thoughts. And every night before going to bed, you know, you just try to imagine what it is like to close your eyes and be asleep and then have somebody jostling you awake, pointing a gun at your face with a flashlight in your eyes and a ski mask on. And 
I know that for myself all of these years, every time I stepped out of my house, I looked everywhere to make sure the big boogeyman wasn't there. And has it changed? Yeah, I think I changed. And why? Because there are a lot of other boogeymen out there. But it was just this one affected the lives of so many people, the victims, their families, the whole community at that time, you know, was in an uproar and living in fear. And so the arrest on this case really has helped a lot. So for years, you've been at the center of this wheel in a sense, where you had these relationships with these survivors, but they didn't necessarily know each other. Now, since the arrest, many of them kind of have come forward out of the shadows and started telling their story for the first time. Can you talk about what it's like for you to now see these different women finally building these bonds with each other? Well, let me go back um, maybe a couple of months before the arrest was made and the identification was made. And over the years, a couple of the victims have called. They have met at my house, and one of them brought her daughter with her, and they just wanted to talk about it and put it aside. And the daughter wanted to hear, you know, from the investigator. And so I always accommodated and helped wherever I could. So it's just different situations like that. But after the arraignment, one of the victims who lives in Elk Grove hosted several of the victims at her home, and they had a big feast. Let me tell you, there was food galore. And they got together, they talked and met each other and exchanged information. And so then after the next two court hearings, I volunteered our home because we're so close to the courthouse. We're just five miles down the road, right off the freeway. So we've hosted that meeting the last two court hearings at our home. And what a time of healing. And, you know, I was was just thinking about victims. They can either become filled with hate and vengeance, or they can be filled with overcoming love and forgiveness. And some of the victims have even gotten to the point where they have been able to forgive the East Area Rapist for what he did and how he destroyed their lives and how they had to put things back together. That's quite amazing on their part. Now, Carol, let me ask you, what's your opinion on the upcoming trial being in Sacramento? Well, Everybody thought the trial would be held down in uh, Southern California. And I really can't speak a lot to that because that was a decision that was made by all of the district attorneys in concert with each other. And I think they were looking at a place where they had the most help available, room available, expertise available, and for reasons that I think the crime started here and I think District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert felt they should end here. You know, you know, and another interesting element of this, over the years, the family members of the murder victims had been very outspoken. For obvious reasons, the rape victims had not. Now that this is all out in the open, it seems like the family members of the murder victims are starting to connect with the rape survivors. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, they are because they came, some of them came to the court hearing and they were able to meet with the victims. And it's just a connection. And one of the victims, one of the rape victims is deceased and her family is advocating for her in her absence. I mean, that's how strong the emotions have run in the families. 
That's amazing. Looking back on all of it, what would you say is the most special thing you've taken away from this? What has touched you the most? I think the victims have touched me the most with their strength, their ability to overcome, to get on with their life, and to be positive in the struggles that they're going through now and this whole process and trying to digest it and figure out you know, where they are at this point in their emotions. The victims have absolutely touched me the most. Well, Carol, you were a pioneer in your day. We've heard from these victims. They wouldn't be the strong women they are today. Was it not for your hell back then and through the years since? You've been such a great supporter in us and getting the word out. Thank you so much for all you've done and what you continue to do for the survivors. We're so excited that um, you are here today, and thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much. East Area Rapist victim number five, Jane Carson, was one of the first to publicly share her stories and returns to express her reaction to the identification and arrest of the suspected Golden State Killer. Please welcome Jane, also known as East Area Rapist victim number five. Hi, Jane. Hi. Hi. Hi, Joe. Hi, Biagio. How are you? Good. Great. So nice to talk to you again. To you, too. Jane, you were one of the first voices to speak out on this case, long before Me Too, long before an arrest was ever made. Uh, What gave you the strength at the time to stand up and own your story so publicly? Well, back during the time of my rape, back in 1976, no one ever spoke about rape. It was a taboo subject. Um, But, you know, how can you ever help anyone that has been raped if you don't speak out. And I just felt so strongly and with um, you know, my faith that I could go out there and not be embarrassed anymore to say, hey, you know, this is what happened to me. And maybe by telling my story, I can help other, you know, women come forward and tell theirs as well. That's great. And actually, the you know, the last few months before the arrest, you were able to participate in quite a few media opportunities to try to bring attention to the case. Now, when that was happening, did you feel like there was momentum building to a capture or did you still feel it was a long shot? No, I uh, I always believed that he would eventually be caught. I, I truly did. I believe that. And, uh, you know, it happened and it's just it's just unbelievable, but I just give so much credit to uh, Paul Holes and um, the genealogist and everyone else that, you know, just worked so hard for so many years to have closure. And it's just meant so much to so many of us because, you know, we never really thought, we never really knew it was he ever going to come back. And uh, we always had that fear. And I'm, I'm saying us because not, you know, it's not something that I felt. I think we all felt that way. All of his victims especially with the returning phone calls and the, you know, the continuing threats. Um, You just really, really never felt safe. But I always believed he would be caught. You know, some people in law enforcement thought he might be dead. But, you know, until you know for sure, there's there's still that fear that, you know, I mean, he was the right age, that he could still be alive, living a normal life out there. Exactly. And he is, you know, he is, we're the same age. You know, it's very likely. I don't know that he could be hopping fences like he used to be and, and be in great physical capacity, but I still think that he could still continue to commit crimes or instill fear, which was he was so good at, especially during my rape. Where were you and how did you find out about the arrest? I was actually in a motel room in North Carolina. My husband and I were just returning 
from a trip to Europe, and uh, we were staying in a hotel room on our way back here to Bluffton, South Carolina, and I think it was in the middle of the night, I think it was April 25th or April 26th, when I got a text on my phone, and it was Larry Crompton saying, well, I guess you heard... And I didn't know what he was talking about. You know, I guess you've heard. No, I haven't heard. And uh, so rather than calling Larry back, I called Carol Daly. And she said, yes, it's true. It's true. I'm getting all these phone calls. So I don't know what time it was in California then. But, uh, yeah, then I knew for sure. So my, I think I've said this before, but my husband and I just, you know, woke up the whole hotel, saw, you know, just sobbing and just so thrilled. Just we couldn't believe it. Just unbelievable. You know, it was just amazing. Just amazing. So you get this incredible news. You know, what were your first thoughts? Oh, well, I, I was just crying so hard, just in pure joy. You know, just, yes, finally, you're behind bars. Finally, finally, you know, you, uh, you know, we gotcha. And uh, what a relief. That, that was the big thing, too. What a relief. I no longer have to look over my shoulder all the time. And I did. You know, I have to say that. You never knew. I always had, a, you know, I even in the last few years, I had some weird phone calls and we put an alarm system on my home here. Oh. So, yeah, just some hang up calls, changed my phone number. And uh, again, it sounds crazy after, you know, 42 years that he's going to be calling me. But when you have those hang up calls, you know, you just never know. So just to be sure, we changed my phone number and put uh, an alarm system on our home. Now, obviously, you've, you've bonded with a lot of people, uh, you know, around the case. When you found out what happened, who did you share the news with? Oh, my. Well, I think I was on the phone pretty quickly with Michelle and Debbie and Margaret. Um, yeah, but I was so busy on the way home from the hotel back here. The phone kept ringing, ringing, ringing in the car as we were driving home, just people wanting to do interviews. And the next, the next day, I mean, that evening when I got home, I don't know what station was in front of the house to come in to do an interview. And then the next day I was, I had to be on the Megan Kelly show again. And this time it was really exciting because this time, you know, I was able to say, Hey, you know, we got him now. So uh, that was pretty cool. But, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, it's been really an amazing, an amazing adventure. And the folks that I've met along this route, wow. I mean, folks like you and folks like Todd and, oh my gosh, Paul Holes and Carol Daly, my angel, and my sister survivors and, oh, Ken Clark. I mean, there's just so many people. Larry Crompton, um, Richard Shelby. Yeah. He was my uh, first detective that came to the house. After the rape, he and Carol, well, Carol was the one that took me to the emergency room, and she was my angel because she just stayed right there with me and just really was such a comfort. And then Shelby would come to my house all the time in his trench coat looking like he was he was so funny. But anyway, Shelby would come over and uh, all the time and, uh, you know, visit, ask more questions. That's funny. Well, well, the message from law enforcement over the years and one that I remember you actually making on the Megan Kelly show, your first appearance, was that this offender could be anyone, a neighbor, a coworker, a husband, a father. Right. You even said he could be someone in the audience. And I know. Did you see that? It did. Oh, gosh. 
Yeah. It got some chuckles, that's for sure. But It did. It did. But then with the arrest, we learned a suspect was alive and was someone's neighbor, co-worker, husband, and father. Was that still surprising? Oh, my gosh. That's, I didn't think of it that way, but you're right. You're right. Well, what was it like for you to first see, you know, the, the mugshot on television, Joseph D'Angelo, who stands accused of being your rapist? Well, you know, of course, I... I looked at all those mug shots earlier and uh, nothing looked familiar to me, you know, knowing someone that could have looked like him. And of course, then when he raped me, he had a ski mask on. So I guess I was really angry the first time I saw him brought into court in that wheelchair. And I thought, give me a break, buddy. You know, who are you trying to play? Get out of that damn wheelchair. And that just, you know, he wanted all this pity people to feel sorry for him like he's some sick old man. And uh, boy, that certainly wasn't uh, the case. But I'll tell you what happened when I actually saw him in person for the first time. I guess I wasn't psychologically ready for that because all along, whenever I've spoken and whenever I've been on any shows, I've never broken down. And it's always like I've compartmentalized, you know, this whole episode with him. So I really maybe never have dealt with it in a real way because it's always been, you know, Jane Carson Sandler, but that is in a different compartment in my head. So, but when I saw him in court the first time prior to him entering, I was sitting in the front row with um, Debbie Domingo. And uh, just before they brought him in into this cage, I started sobbing and I sobbed and I sobbed and I didn't know why I was crying. I still can't tell you today why I was crying. I was just crying. And Debbie, God bless her, she put her arm around me and she said, Jane, she said, this is your time. This is your moment. She says, you've got to be in it. I'm putting around the armor of God around you. And, you know, I stopped crying. And then they brought him in. And that anger that I used to have that I thought I had gotten rid of came back big time came back mm. and I just wanted to jump out of my chair and go punch him in the face. I mean, I was so angry then to see him and to know what he's done to so many people and how many lives he's destroyed. So then I thought, Oh great. Now I've got this anger back again, but uh, I'm, I'm okay now I've dealt with it. I've realized that that was probably very normal for me to, you know, have that type of reaction after never having seen him in person but, you know, I still have things to work on, that's for sure. We we have the um, the scars, but, uh, you know, the wounds remain. Right. You know, in light of all that, do you have anything to say to him or ask him, D'Angelo? Well, of course, I uh, always wanted to find out, you know, why he moved my son, where he moved my son, you know, where did he see me for the first time, you know, kind of like, why me? And also, too, you know, I... I'd like to have him apologize to his victims and their families, and I'd like to admit his guilt and then, you know, get down on his hands and knees and ask God for forgiveness. Now, will I ever get to face him? I doubt it, but I would love to have that opportunity. What are your plans for the upcoming trial? Will, will you be asked to testify? Or are you planning on being there? Well, I don't know when that, they say that trial may be a few years out, and uh, if I have the opportunity, I would you know, be there every, every day in the front row. Yes. Yes. And again, supporting all of my other sister survivors as well, not just Margaret and uh, Debbie and Michelle and myself, but all the other women and all the other, other folks that he's, you know, lives that he has affected. I want to be there for them and support them. 
I just, I only have a brother. I've never had a sister. And these other gals are just, they're amazing. They're just amazing women. And um, I just love them dearly. Talk about that bond that you formed with these other survivors and family members of murdered victims. Oh, wow. (laughs) You know, when I think about my rape, I mean, it was nothing compared to what Oh, my goodness. Well, what Debbie went through with her mom and Michelle went through with her sister and even Margaret, you know, being 13 and being assaulted by that evil, evil man. I was so fortunate being number five because uh, after my assault, he became much more violent. So um, I was very fortunate and I don't ever regret being raped. I don't because, you know, it is really I read that book, The Purpose Driven Life, and it really showed me that, you know, this is purpose that God has given me. You know, this traumatic event happened to me, but now what am I going to do with it? And I'm going to do the best I can with it. And that is, again, to, um, you know, reach out, be there with other, be there for other women, be a support, um, let them know that they can get through this. You know, I wrote my book, Frozen in Fear, which I really encourage women to read because I think it will really, um, you know, help them get through their trauma. And it was good for me, too. It was very therapeutic for me, you know, writing that book. So here I think I'm doing all of this good stuff to heal. And then I go to <laughs> I go to the courtroom and just break down like a baby. But and again, I can't tell you why I, I cannot put a definition as to what made me cry. I wasn't afraid. I wasn't necessarily angry at that point. I had seen him. But uh, it was just like, oh, <laughs> But I'll probably get that anger reaction back again. Yeah, yeah it's I do that when I see him when I when I see him on TV in these different uh, previews for the shows, and I see his face again, and it's the same. I get that feeling again, and you know, I hate that. I hate being tied up in anger. Well, I would assume that after all these years, you know, of of hoping, of believing, of having faith that there will be a resolution, it's still never a certainty. So then to finally sit in a courtroom with a man accused of those crimes. Oh, about to be walked in that like, you know, it's almost like letting the air out of that tense balloon, right? That you're just... Boy, that is so that is so true. And in fact, when I was in court, I'd had a sign made and it said, now we dot, 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 have the power and control. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to hold that up in court for him to see it, but other folks saw it. And that's so true. That is so true. I hope that... Well, I'm glad that he is behind bars. And I think that's so great for folks like Inspector Shelby and Carol Daly and Paul and all those folks that have worked so hard on this case because, you know, Carol and Shelby are, and, and and Jane included are getting up there in age and we really, it's so good to see him behind bars and that's where he belongs. So all their efforts certainly have paid forth. Looking back on all of this over all these years, what are the one thing you're happy you're taking away from this? I'd say amazing friendships and and also to live by faith and never give up, never give up your hope. Always continue to have that faith. And uh, it's just proved to me that by daily prayer and meditation and uh, sharing with all those others that have been affected, that the friendships are just so strong. And again, I've, I've just met the most amazing people. I mean, I can go on and on about um, <laughs> my crime family, my new crime family, <laughs> that I just love and my sister survivors that I just love. So, um, you know, that never would have happened, but uh, I never think we should give up hope. And for those families out there, when I think of um, like the colonial parkway murders, 
you know, so many other crimes that have not been solved, I don't want them to give up hope because it took 42 years to get the Golden State Killer. And so they just need to hang on and, and keep their faith and keep praying. And uh, I think, too, especially with the new DNA, I think their crimes will also be solved. Well, Jane, thank you for all that you've done on this case throughout the years. These stories need courageous victims and survivors to be the face of it and give it meaning. And you definitely did that. So thank you for doing that years ago. And thank you for being here today and sharing your story. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thank you, guys. Thank you for asking me to be part of this. Coming up next week, Jane Carson's fellow sister survivors share their stories. Debbie Domingo, whose mother Sherry Domingo and boyfriend Greg Sanchez were murdered by the Golden State Killer in 1981, and Margaret Wardlow, one of the East Area Rapist's youngest victims, who at the age of 13 refused to show him any fear. And for more on the Golden State Killer case, the complete Unmasking a Killer documentary series is available on demand with CNN Go. And you can listen and subscribe to the entire Companion podcast series, including these new episodes, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Biagio Messina. And I'm Joke Finciun. Thanks for listening.